Welcome to tonight's webinar in association with Reblo Coaching, the underage section of Cork GA. Tonight's webinar will be available to watch back on YouTube and will be on podcast form from tomorrow morning on reblocoaching.com website. I'm delighted to welcome Pat Colhan, who is National Games Development Officer with the GA for the past nine years, where he, where he manages programs for introducing children to Gaelic games in clubs and primary schools throughout Ireland. Prior to Croke Park, Pat was the Hurling Development Officer in Limerick City for six years. Pat is also currently a Doctor of Management Candidate in Glasgow Caledonian University, and we're delighted to welcome Pat here this evening uh, for this presentation entitled, Why Do I Coach? Thanks very much for joining us this evening, Pat. Um, I know you have a few slides to, for the presentation, so over to you. Uh, hello, everybody. I'm delighted to be here, and I'm taking great heart from all the online learning engagement by Gaelic Games coaches in in recent months, fair play to you and to Revelog for this positive initiative. I'm very grateful for everybody's time, for giving up their precious time this evening to, to listen to me. I hope you won't be disappointed. Just a little quick disclaimer, all views are my own this evening. They're not that of my employer or the university or anybody else. So, um, yeah, what's the presentation about tonight? It's, it's about called Why Do I Coach? And it's not about why I, Pat Colhan, coach. It's about asking yourself why you coach. Uh, I don't believe that most of us are motivated by saying you should do this, you should do that, or you should do it in a particular way. So that's not the approach I'm going to take tonight. I, I'm just going to try and help people um, a little bit to, uh, you know, maybe think about why, why they coach. Um, most of the time, we, uh, most of the time when we think about coaching um, or coach education, it's in the the, 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 we ask the, the, the what questions. So, like, what do I coach? Um, what behaviors do the children have that I coach? What, what are my own behaviors? Uh, how can I do all of those things better as well? And there's loads of how questions. Um, you know, how, how do I coach the skills better? How do I communicate better? How do I motivate children better? And, you know, I think seeking such answers, seeking such what um, questions, uh, questions and how questions answers is absolutely fine and I, I, I more power to, to coaches who invest their time uh, in develop themselves as coaches but I've rarely met uh, in my 30 odd years involvement in sport as a player and as a, as a coach and a development officer I've seldom met or encountered coaches who have stopped who seriously stopped and asked themselves why why do I do all of this why am I putting myself forward at the AGM um, when, when uh, nobody else will um, why am I racing home from work to deal with the complexity um, of a group of, of, uh, of, 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 of children and their parents? You know, why am I uh, getting out of bed early on a Saturday morning in the lashing rain to get down to the pitch a half an hour earlier than everybody else to set up the, the, the activities and, and the exercises for, 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 for the children to, to enjoy themselves for the hour? Why do, why do people do this? Um, philosopher... Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche said that uh, for, sorry I'm skipping a slide now uh, he said that he who has a why to live for can bear almost anyhow so tonight is about asking yourself uh, why you coach and a lot of the research and probably more so my own experience of, of coaching and as a, I'm working as a coach developer, as a, as a tutor with the GA over the last, you know, 15, 16 years. Um, I, it's a question I ask 
people, you know, a lot of the time, I, I've asked dozens and dozens of coaches over the years, you know, wh why do you do this? And the typical responses um, are, you know, because I, 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 I do it for the kids, you know, um, I coach for the kids because I enjoy it. Um, somebody, somebody had to do it. Nobody else would. Um, I, I want to, I want to give something back. That's the biggest main reason I hear, um, from coaches. You know, I want to give something back to the community, to the club, um, to, to, to the parish. And, you know, another, another big kind of generic response I hear is I love the game and I love the sport. And, and all of these are perfectly rational, um, responses. They're, they're, they're absolutely, um, they're, they're absolutely true and, and they're well-intentioned and all the rest of it. But I suppose what I'm trying to get at tonight is, is the meaning uh, of children's sport. Um, it's the meaning of it um, at, at its deepest level um, and, 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 and the role of, of, of the coach within, within children's sport. So um, I skipped onto that slide already. And, you know, here, what do we see? We see uh, children playing uh, soccer in Syria, in war-torn Syria. And, you know, objectively, uh, we see children chasing and kicking a piece of leather around, um, buildings crumbling in the background, you know. Life, life is pretty hard there, I'd imagine. Um, but, it, you know, it, it doesn't mean anything really just to see people chasing a piece of leather around, kicking it into a string net, or in this case, probably, you know, a set of jumpers on the ground. You know, what, what, what does that mean? On an objective kind of a rational level, it really doesn't mean anything, but at the same time to these children, it means absolutely everything. At a deeper subjective level, that of the, the heart and soul, we see, we see children playing, really playing on their terms, the kind of play that allows children for those brief periods to feel in charge of their own lives, which is crucial for developing self-confidence and resilience. Um, uh, we, we see children uh, participating no subs, the pitch size is about right, and the rules are too, I'd imagine. Children feel part of something bigger than themselves. Uh, we see children trying passionately. Sport demands a physical endurance that reflects our desire to keep going, to keep living. Uh, my mother, who was gravely ill in hospital just before Christmas, insisted on sitting up every day, brushing her hair, and putting on um, her makeup. The chance to try should never be taken away from children in pursuit of results. Um, what else do we see? And I think this is the most crucial, crucial one for me. Uh, we also see the image. Um, in this image, we see children imagining. Um, maybe they're Lionel Messi. Uh, maybe they're, they're, they're somebody else. Uh, as a child, I relived Kieran Carey's famous point uh, against Clare in 1996. Everybody has relived something in a sporting context in their life. Everybody on the call tonight, I'd imagine, at one stage or another. We are imagining creatures, human beings, adults and children. We often think it's just children, but I think adults are, are just as, 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 as um, imaginative. Right now, as each of you participate in this webinar, there's a rich tapestry of dreams going on as you're sitting there. Uh, think about movies, art and music, how they engage people's imagination and people want to be engaged in that way. Uh, you know, Another thing I see in this image is that, is that nothing is measured in the game, maybe apart from the score that the children keep. And do they really care about the score the next day? You know, probably not. The most important things you experience in life 
cannot be measured. There is no measurement for marriage, raising children, or the sorrow of loss. Love can't be measured, and neither can actual play. The, the greatest things in life are not in reality. They come from our imagination. So uh, I love this quote from England Hockey. I see Brian Cuthbert used it a few weeks ago, um, column on, on this, this podcast. And it says that the game is the teacher, the pitch is the classroom, and the coach is the facilitator. There's been a lot around games-based coaching, which is really, really important. And, you know, being out there on the pitch and, and learning through the game and, and coaches, you know, teaching uh, the game through, through, through the game itself. It's just the last piece there that I want to concentrate on, which is the role of the coach as a facilitator. What are we trying to facilitate? And more importantly, why are we facilitating it? At the fundamental and the fundamental meaning of coaching, as I see it, um, is to facilitate children's play, trying and imagining. A coach can facilitate children to rise above life and into a place of magic, especially the child who may be from a, who may be from a, a difficult background or, or disadvantaged in some way. The, the little child who, who comes down to the pitch from that kind of background is, 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 is magic in itself. So you have that hour in the week or two hours in the week to, 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 to lift people out of the, the kind of mundanity of life and into the marvelous. It, 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 don't underestimate your role in that regard. It's really, really, really important. And I suppose ultimately, you know, what are we, what are we trying to do as coaches? Why are, we, why are we coaching? Why am I coaching? Well, I can tell you that I find a lot of meaning in this quote from um, poet, American poet Maya Angelou. She said, I've learned that people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And just moving on to the next slide, you know, a few things that I suppose inspire me and influence why I coach. Um, again, I'm not going into the what, what we coach or, or how we coach it. That stuff is, is really important and the bulk of time is spent on that. This again is about why I coach, uh, why I coach. Um, you know, coaching is a, a deeply personal process and, you know, some of the stuff I'm going to share with you, you may have seen before, uh, some of it you mightn't, uh, some of it you, agree, you might agree with, some of, some of it you mightn't. At the end of the day, it's, it's meaningful to me. And I hope that this will be in some way meaningful to you as well. So a, a guy I love in terms of play, I mentioned play earlier and facilitating play. I really love the work of a guy called Dr. Peter Gray. Um, he spent, he's dedicated his life basically to, to researching play and to educate people around what he describes as play, which is often at odds, I would say, around the practice or, of play that we we you know consider as as coaches in in, um, in 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 youth sport in Ireland. So I just have a very short clip around what he uh, defines as play, and just listen to the passion in his voice. I'm a researcher who studies play from a biological evolutionary perspective. Um, I'm interested. Sorry, Pat, you let take off the mute. He's gone mute as well there since you muted, sorry. Sorry. Now, if you walk through most neighborhoods in the United States, what you find if you find kids outdoors at all is they're wearing uniforms, they're on some kind of manicured field, they're following the directions of adult coaches while their parents are sitting on the sidelines cheering their every move. We call this play sometimes, but it isn't by 
any play researcher's definition, it's not really play. Play, by definition, is self-controlled and self-directed. It's the self-directed aspect of nature, of, of play, that gives it its educative power. Play is where children learn that they're in control of their own life. It's really the only place they are in control of their own life. When we take that away, we don't give them the chance to learn how to control their own life. Play is where they learn to solve their own problems and learn, therefore, that the world is not so scary after all. Play is where they experience joy and they learn the world is not so depressing after all. Play is where they learn to get along with peers and see from others' points of view and practice empathy and get over narcissism. Play is, by definition, creative and innovative. Of course, if you take away play, all these things are going to go down. And yet, the hue and cry that we hear everywhere is for more school, not for more play. And we've got to, we've really got to change that. Again, on a rational level, you know, his, stu his stuff is, um, can you hear me, Colin? Yeah, yeah. perfect, Pat. Great. Uh, on a rational level, you know, you might or disagree or agree with his work, but there's something about his sincerity and his passion that I, that, that I, that I connect to with him. Another, another guy or two guys that I, I, I work that I love is, is Decky and Ryan, self-determination theory. It's been around a lot. It's concerned with the motivation behind choices people make with external influence and interference um, without external influence and interference. It includes research done on sports coaching. Um, at the heart of it is autonomy and, and you, know, you facilitating a, 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 a training session or, or an environment, some people call it, around autonomy support. You know, allowing the child a space, like those children were in Spiria, to set up their own games and to just play as, 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 as just defined there by, by um, Dr. Gray. So again, I have a very short video on this. I've just picked out a couple of key points from Edward Decky on uh, this really important theory. For more than 30 years, my best friend Rich Ryan and I have been working on a theory of motivation that we call self-determination theory. And the distinction that is most important for us is between controlled motivation and autonomous motivation. Controlled motivation is essentially the carrot and stick. When you're controlled in your motivation, you've either been seduced into behaving, perhaps by an offer of a reward, or coerced into behaving, perhaps by threat of punishment. But in either of those cases, you feel a lot of pressure. And within you is a sense of tension and anxiety. And all of those things have negative consequences for your performance and well-being. When coaches are more autonomy supportive, the research shows their athletes persist longer at the activity, they feel better about themselves while doing it, and they work together better as a team. So what am I trying to say in all this? The take-home message is, don't ask how you can motivate other people. That's the wrong way to think about it. Instead, ask, how can you create the conditions within which other people will motivate themselves? 
And the answer, quite simply, is autonomy support. Yeah, and again, you see the passion in his voice. Another guy I came across in my late 20s was a guy called Alain de Batan. He's a Swiss philosopher. He wrote a book, kind of a controversial book, called Status Anxiety. And, you know, his, his basic um, argument here is that uh, status anxiety, um, a lot of it revolves around, the anxiety revolves around people's perception of success. And I know certainly most of my life as a student and as a, a, a player of many sports, particularly hurling and Gaelic football, I, I always perceived and took success at face value. Uh, so who finished top of the class? You know, who was the best hurler? Who won the league? Who won the championship? Who had the biggest house? Who had the biggest car? All that kind of stuff. And it's probably not until I read this book that I kind of said, this guy is onto something. This guy um, has a, a, makes an alternative argument to what success really is at its deepest level. And I just, again, have a very, very short little video around uh, what his definition of success is. And I hope you enjoy it. What I think I've been talking about really is success and failure. And um, one of the interesting things about success is that we think we know what it means. Uh, if I said to you that there's somebody behind uh, the screen who's very, very successful, uh, certain ideas would immediately come to mind. Uh, you would think that person might have made a lot of money, uh, achieved renown in some field. Um, my own theory of success, and I'm somebody who's very interested in success. I really want to be successful. I'm always thinking, how can I be more successful? But as I get older, I'm also very nuanced about what that word success might mean. Here's an insight that I've had about success. You can't be successful at everything. Um, we hear a lot about talk about work-life balance nonsense. You can't have it all, you can't. So any vision of success has to admit what it's losing out on, where the element of loss is. Uh, and I think any wise life will, will accept, as I say, um, that there's gonna be an element where we're not succeeding. And the thing about a successful life is that a lot of the time our ideas of what it would mean to live successfully are not our own. They're sucked in from other people, chiefly if you're a man, your father, and if you're a woman, your mother. Uh, psychoanalysis has been drumming home this message for about 80 years. No one's quite listening hard enough, but I very much believe that that's true. Uh, and we also suck in messages from everything from the television uh, to advertising to, to marketing, etc. These, these are hugely powerful forces that define what we want and how we view ourselves. Um, uh, when we're told that banking is a very respectable profession, a lot of us want to go into banking. Uh, when banking is no longer so respectable, we lose interest uh, uh, in banking. We are highly open uh, uh, to suggestion. So what I want to argue uh, for is not that we should give up on our ideas of success, but we should make sure that they are our own. We should focus in on our ideas and um, uh, uh, make sure that we own them, that we are truly the authors of our own ambitions. Because it's bad enough not getting what you want, um, but it's even worse to have an idea of what it is you want and find out at the end of the journey that it isn't, in fact, uh, what you wanted uh, uh, all along. Pat, just on that, Pat, that's, that's, that's really interesting concept in that from a GA perspective, success um, for coaches is 99.9% .9 of the time did they win the championship for older age groups or did they win all their games mm. for younger, younger age groups. But success, I suppose, if everybody goes with that, I suppose, viewpoint, then there's a lot of very unsuccessful people. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. whereas a lot of coaches, I suppose, would like maximizing your ability with a particular group or retention of players. Like there's, there's success in that too, isn't there? 
Yeah, it's what an interesting point. I, I, I heard a, a, a talk recently and, and the, the guy giving the talk said that 10,000 people run the London Marathon or 20,000, something like that every year, the London um, Marathon. And so if there's only one winner, does that mean there's 999 losers, you know? And I'm going to come on to a little bit more in the presentation, but yeah. like we, we, we live in a very polarized society, you know, Republican, Democrat, you know, Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil, although they've come together, surprisingly. Um, you know, you win, you lose. You know, my mother, um, Colm, would have always said, that poor misfortunate. You know, that's, they're, the, they're the exact words she used. If there was any kind of, someone who was maybe dis disadvantaged or injured or sick or something, she, I can hear it in my ears, you know, the poor misfortunate. The word we use, you know, as part of the vernacular now is loser. You know, and we do, we do this and loser. And it's just... It's just horrible, you know, and I think that kind of extreme uh, labeling or perceived kind of labeling of, of, of losing and, you know, even, even uh, the translation of that into, into the emotional outpouring of, of losing a, a county under 12B uh, final, you know, and this young fellow thrown down in the pitch and they're absolutely devastated. On one level, it's, it's, it's great that they're so invested in that actual yeah. game, but like they're, they're mirroring you know, Paul Gascoigne and, and whoever the whoever's of today, where it's, 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 it, we're living in a, in a kind of a polarized world that's kind of more extreme. I'll come back to that again yeah, in a minute. No, I actually, I love that, that marathon um, analogy <laughs> because for, for a lot of people, just running the marathon is a success. And exactly. That's, if we all viewed the rest of the world and the rest of sport the same as people view that, it would be a, a lot better place. Um, but go on, carry on. Thanks. Uh, so, yeah, this guy, you know, I, I, I love, um, he, he's a guy called Victor Frankl. Some of you have probably heard of him. He survived four prisoner of, prisoner of war camps. He's a medical doctor. And um, he, 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 before, just before World War II, um, 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 before the, the Holocaust, he, he had a, a manuscript written out. There was no Microsoft Cloud or Google Drive back then. He had a book written out and it was around, you know, man's search for meaning in life and, you know, what motivates people and all that kind of stuff. But, the Nazis came, raided his, his home or his workplace, and, and, and they were burned. They were, they were lost forever. And his dream, I suppose, of, of writing that book, um, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of kept him going through four prisoner of war camps. And, and what he observed in the prisoner of war camps, actually, was there was kind of, there was, there was three types of people. There was people that were, and, and, and it doesn't sound nice, but they were sent to their death. This happened, and they had no choice about it. But where, where people, some way, had a, choice about it he said that there were some people that retained meaning in their life his was the the fact that he wanted to write a book uh, when he got out and there was all there was others that just gave up and he said you know ultimately what he learned through that horrific experience was that uh, people create their own meanings in in their own life as mundane as the meaning may be like you said Colm, the person who you know last year couldn't even walk to the shop but now they're doing um, a 5K run and they move on and they move on and they keep, and they, they do a marathon. It might take them five hours, but they have won the world championships. They are, they've won the Olympic gold medal. So I suppose success is relative to the individual. You know, I, I, a friend of mine as well is a CEO of a, a, very, a very big technology company in Ireland, but he, he struggles as in, he laughs. He says he struggles to make his junior local junior soccer team at home. You know, he's kind of a nobody there. So, you know, success is, is contextual. It's relevant. It's relative to um, the individual, um, not the whole of the individual's life, but the various elements of the individual's life. And Viktor Frankl, um, and, and that book, by the way, Man's Heart for Meaning, is probably the best book I've ever read. 
there's a free audio version of it on YouTube. I, just listen to it. It's, it's four hours or so. It's brilliant. But he said about success, he said that you shouldn't aim at success. The more you aim at it and the more uh, you make it a target, the more you're going to miss it. For success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue as the un- unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a course greater than oneself. And, and that's what I was talking about there in terms of the children in Syria. They're part of something bigger than themselves. They're not reflecting on their own uh, individual selves or their own ego. They're, they're, they're lost in the, in, in, in the joy of just playing um, as Lionel Messi or, or, or somebody else. So just to move on from that, um, and uh, Victor Frankl stuff, uh, you know, another guy, and we've all seen this before, I'm sure uh, most people, is John, John Wooden, the famous basketball coach, he said that success is peace of mind attained only through self-satisfaction and, no, and um, knowing you've made the effort to do the best of what you're capable. And I've put my own spin on it. Um, uh, uh, and it, it reads as such. And it's similar, but there's, a, there's, a, there's one subtle difference. And I think it's crucial. Um, success is peace of mind deriving from self-satisfaction, knowing that you are making the effort, given the context. Those three words there are crucial. Given the context, to do the best that you are capable of. And a really important part for me um, and is, is not at the unnecessary expense of, of anybody else. You shouldn't really um, you know, feel successful, I would, I would say, uh, by walking all over people or take cutting corners or cheating. You know, we abhor cheating and um, it goes completely against the honor of, 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 of the game and the sport. Uh, so that's my version of success. I, I, I kind of a a more condensed version of it is, is success is not equals to winning. It can be winning. That's, 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 that's crucial. The, the not equals to sign is, is there for a reason. It just means that a lot of society, like Alan de Patan said, equate success with winning, finishing first, big house, big job, whatever. Um, but it doesn't always equate to it. It can be. I mean, there's nothing better. I want a hearty cup in an All-Ireland um, uh, school comp- uh, championship in 99, a couple of county championships with a hand, my club in Limerick. Wonderful, wonderful times. The first time in 43 years we were out um, in 1998. I was a minor and it, there was about a dozen bonfires throughout the parish. Um, and, you know, since we, the first time we won the county senior championship. Winning is fantastic. I love winning. I, I strive to be successful and to win myself, but you have to kind of realize, and you probably realize it when you get a little bit older in life and the, and, and faith kind of touches you on the shoulder as it, as it, I'm sure it has all of us that you start to lose stuff, you know, and, um, you know, and, and it's all, you kind of said, you know, success really isn't about winning all the time. It's about just having a normal day, being able to get up, um, you know, get through your day, um, you know, you and, and your loved ones, your colleagues and so on remain healthy, especially in times like this. And then to go to bed uh, at night um, with relative peace of mind, you know, that's, that's success for me. Um, success is, is, is equal to peace of mind. That's kind of more of a life mantra um, almost than a, than, a, than, a, than a coaching mantra, but it's something I definitely um, carry into uh, uh, my coaching. And I can't wait to get back when the time is right, just to be back in the corner of a field, even with social distancing, just to be back involved with, with, with uh, kids again and teaching them the skills of hurling and, and all the rest of it. Now, this stuff is probably a little bit abstract. I'm not going to spend too much time on it. It's very much related to my PhD research, but I think it's, it's worth putting out there. And it's called paradox mindset. You know, we, 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 we kind of know what a paradox is. The official kind of um, definition, if you like, uh, 
the most widely accepted one is that paradoxes are contradictory yet interrelated elements that exist simultaneously and persist over time. So you see yin and yang there, they're they're all part of the one thing, Uh, but again, they're they're separate, you know? So how many times, Colm or anybody on the call, how many times have you heard a coach or, you know, a principal of a school or a teacher or anybody, your boss said, it needs to be one way or the other. And in, in, the, in a minority of cases, things need to be one way or another. But a lot of the time in life, I think um, they can be both and, and, and they can be both success and failure. They can be both participation and performance. They can be both winning and losing. They can be both positive and negative. And simultaneously means at the same time. One there that I'm very passionate about is the whole area of participation and performance. You know, a, a massive challenge, if you like, for, co- for, for coaches, especially underage coaches, where you could be dealing with, you know, dozens of children at a particular age grade, under eight, under 10, whatever it is, you know, how do I, um, how do I facilitate, um, you know, maximize participation and also performance, you know, um, it, 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 can, it can be done, um, but it should never be done. Performance should never take precedence over participation it, and but that's that's my eye so i suppose a paradox mindset is probably more about facilitating uh, both participation and performance and you know there's a friend of mine and he has um three sons and you know with full permission i i just asked the children you know why why do you play sport you know i i i, I read loads of books and i'm showing you all those things those theories and all those other things but at the end of the day you know, why, why am I coaching? And, you know, I'm probably doing it for myself to a degree, a bit of fresh air and all that kind of stuff I mentioned earlier. But like, it has to be at its deepest level. It has to be facilitating play, imagination, all those wonderful things for children. And if you're ever unsure uh, sometimes, and sometimes I, I kind of go off tracks slightly and I'm a little bit unsure, you know, maybe it's you're, you're doing a session with the under 10s and it's just not going well. You know, you're maybe not in the best of form, but you know, sometimes I, I just, when the time is right, I, I just to reinforce the, the whole reason we get out of bed and do this stuff. I just ask the children, and I've asked loads of them, and I encourage you to do it. Why, why are you here? Why are you playing sport? And their answers are so unaffected like ours. You know, we've, we, we think of all these positives and negatives and, you know, our, 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 our responses are complex, but theirs aren't. And, and, and just, I just want you to listen to... Um, Three, three little boys, two are twins, they're eight, um, and one boy is ten. Um, and just listen to why they play sport. They, they play hurling and football mostly. Just, just listen to this. Yeah, it's a good way to get active. And it's a good way to meet friends and have fun. Because it's healthy for you. It's healthy and it's good for you. And it's a bit fun. Um, because... Like you can get fit and healthy, and and you you can get better if you train every day. Like the last you get trophies by doing it, doing running and jumping, so you can get trophies. So you can see the subtle differences there around their motivations to play sport, but. You know, grouped together, they, they always come back to the basics, fun, friendship. They want to feel and get better at something. Um, and I, 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 I did 
kind of with the last little boy there, I, I, when he mentioned the kind of winning stuff and he's motivated by trophies, I asked him clearly why, you know, why. And he's a really gifted athlete. He's the most incredibly dedicated, uh, lovely little, lovely little guy. And he, I just listened to his response. It's, it's really, really fascinating. What does that mean for you when you get a gold medal or a trophy? I always dream in bed about getting, <clears throat> getting a trophy in my hand and bringing it home and showing my mum and dad about the golden trophy and silver and bronze. Uh, and why is it important that you dream about it and you like to bring it home? Why is, why is that important to you? Because, like, I like when... Uh, I like the colour of gold, <laughs> like brown and silver. Yeah. Yeah, because they're real colours. <laughs> and uh, any other reasons you might like to win? Because when you win, you feel happy when you win. Yeah, that says it all for me. You know, success is not about either winning or losing. It's not about participation over here performance over there read the national sports policy there's this huge dichotomy between participation and performance they're 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 like yin and yang they're completely reliant on each other they coexist and we have to as coaches try and stop looking at them in in in, in different ways they, they are um you know as i said reliant on each other success um, as a coach is about both winning and losing um it, it success is, is facilitating both participation and performance as I mentioned earlier so um, one guy I really like um, is Jorgen Klopp and I, I to dig pretty hard for this now I wanted to find uh, something that kind of re resonated with, with, with firstly with me and then I, I felt would, would resonate with he and I'm always fascinated by the the, 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 the history of, of, of Jorgen Klopp himself what's his story where did he come from um, he, he was a dad at 21 unexpectedly and he puts basically that's the biggest factor that has influenced his ability to deal with young people some people probably know that and I, I found this gem of, a, of, a, of, a, of an interview that he did with um, or it's just a chat with, with grassroots coaches ordinary grassroots coaches uh, soccer coaches um, from, uh, from around England there's one man from Holland there and just listen to his perception of coaching uh, and why he coaches um, or why he used to coach, uh, or where he started off coaching under underage soccer. I have to say, I, I know about what the guys are doing because I started in a similar situation when I was 21. I, I always knew I wanted to be a manager, but nobody asks usually for this. And um, when I was studying sports science and in Frankfurt, I played football in the third division and trained the from Eintracht Frankfurt, it's a German Bundesliga team, yeah. Yeah, under 10. And next year I took the team to, to, an, to the next age, to ULM, and uh, I don't know what he was in the club, asked me how many new players you want, uh, do you need? And I said, no, no one, I don't need, I, I go with the whole team. And, and, and they said, no, no, we don't do it like this. Look in the, in the regional teams, where you can get the best players for our club and so on. I, I'm not interested. I don't have to look. They, they are good, but they have to be well up. And they, nobody understood this. You have to know decisions about this are really often made by people. They don't care. They don't care about the individual. It's only about quality. So to fight for this, to having time, that's really um, a thing I often think about. 
my youth coach was like this. He was, uh, he was not the best coach in the world, but he was the one who gave us, at the end, the perfect start position because of his passion for the sport. He, he did not know much about football, but at the end he gave us a ball and let us play, but what, he was always there. At the end, the player by themselves make the decision if they go through or not. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful piece. It touches on so many things. Um, he was an under-10 coach at 21. You know, he mentioned about his own coach there who was, he said, did, technically, in terms of the house stuff, didn't, didn't know much, just gave them a ball and, and, and let them at it. Um, you know, I, I often wonder, you know, there should be more to coaching than just throwing in a ball, obviously. But, you know, at the same time, if you're respecting the right of children to play, and it is a right, the United Nations Conventions and the Rights of the Child, Ireland is a signatory of that. We've seen that being introduced in Swedish law, Welsh law, Norwegian law, um, and there's a few others in the pipeline. Uh, but, you know, if you respect the, the, the right of the child to play, um, I think that's, that's just absolutely uh, fundamental. He mentioned as well about, you know, people who, who don't care uh, in, in, in Eintracht Frankfurt. They didn't care about dropping young fellas. And I've seen that as well. I've experienced it as well underage with Limerick and the underage development squads as a player. I, I, you know, I, I, John Allen, who you know, I consider a friend, I remember saying, him saying to me before over a cup of tea, it never sat well with him. It, didn't, it doesn't sit well with me dropping players. And I'm the same. Maybe, maybe I, I, I'm not tenacious enough for, for inter-county management. And maybe I'm a bit too soft. And that's why I'm better coaching kids. But, you know, I think... You know, the ability to care, children will respond to. And, and a great quote I came across in this regard was by former U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt when he said, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. And another thing as well that really influences my, my coaching, and I've only come across this, this work recently, um, Susan David, she's a Harvard uh, professor and a psychologist. And this is really, I suppose, a practical example, a good practical example of the kind of paradox mindset stuff I was talking about earlier. Look at this quote from her book, Emotional Agility. She said, she said that courage is not an absence of fear. Courage is fear walking. So you can see courage and fear, they're living um, alongside each other um, simultaneously. I get another practical example is I was really excited and happy to come on this webinar tonight, but a part of me was like really nervous as well. So the, the coexistence of uh, the courage to do it and the fear, um, they, 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 they coexist alongside each other. And I think there's a kind of a danger out there that we try and squash down and say eradicate fear. We'll get, we'll, we'll get over that. We'll put it aside and we'll, we'll just be courageous. But it doesn't really work like that. Listen to, um, listen to Susan David talking about emotional agility, basically how we navigate our emotions. Um, and, and, and not shying away from the uncomforts that life presents us. Uh, it's, 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 I suppose, that dichotomy or that polarization of the positive and the negative. Everything can't be always positive. Um, we should strive for positivity, oh, absolutely. I'm not saying we, we should strive for negativity, but, but they coexist and we have to recognize that. Listen to this very, very short piece by Susan David. Sometimes this push to positivity leads individuals to then ignore what is going on for them, ignore that they are maybe upset, uh, ignore that they might be in the wrong career, sometimes even rationalizing, at least I've got a job. 
And um, what I am speaking up against is <clears throat> the idea that emotions are somehow bad, that, that, that difficult emotions are negative, that they should be pushed aside. Because I believe, and the research again supports this, that emotions are often beacons of things that are important to us. So when you have a sense of disaffection or dissatisfaction or concern, often what it's saying to you is that you are moving away from something of value or that there's this thing that's important. And so I think that when people simply deny and push aside their emotions in the service of positivity, they actually lose uh, crucial learning. And I also think that that applies not simply to the individual's journey, but to the way a leader might deal with a team's emotions. It's complex stuff, but I think it's worth putting out there at a basic level. If you're interested in it, just pursue it. There's a mountain of stuff on um, Google Scholar, YouTube, webinar, podcasts. You know, there's so much um, great stuff out there. One podcast I love is the Psychology Podcast. And I was just listening to Driving Home to Limerick one day from Dublin. And um, I always um, liked Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. It was way ahead of its time. It's basically about, you know, what people need to survive and thrive. Self-actualization at the top or, you know, peak state is the actualization of your fulfilling of your own potential. Um, the two little things I want to say on it. One, you don't have to master physiological safety, love or esteem to reach uh, self-actualization and he started writing about this and kind of regretted the kind of pyramid um, uh, 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 portrayal of, of his work um, to say that to be in peak performance he, he felt that it was kind of almost elitist as, as he got older and he, and, he, and he actually added and I don't know if too many people um, uh, realize this because I've still seen the hierarchy and he's thrown around the place in the last year or two but before Maslow passed away he added um, another dimension to it called transcendence now, bear with me on this. Um, transcendence uh, is imagining, basically. Do you remember the stuff I was showing you there about the children playing in war-torn Syria, the buildings falling all down around them? You know, the, the same could apply to a child with a parent who, you know, has a substance abuse issue. I've dealt with these children, too many of them, uh, especially in Limerick City when I worked there as a hurling development officer. And, you know, for that hour... When that child comes down to the pitch, that little boy or that little, little girl, the fact that they turn up is almost a miracle. It's a success in itself, you know. And without, you know, mollycoddling children, you know, like you don't have to wrap them in cotton wool. They'll, they'll, they'll be given plenty of adversity to overcome through the game and through learning through the game. But I suppose that the fundamental thing for me here is about um, facilitating, and this might sound a bit off the wall, but the, you as a coach, or certainly I as a coach, I try, I strive to facilitate transcendence. Some nights it's better than others, but I, I like to imagine myself and then translate it into practice that I am taking children, or I am facilitating, probably standing back more as the years have gone by, uh, into a place of magic. There's, there's nothing like sport. Look, you know, um, Dr. Colin O'Connor, a Corkman, said before, if you really want to understand what sport does for people, you look at the crowd on All-Ireland Final Day in Crow Park. Nothing 
will bring a, a grown man to his knees and make him cry uh, like sport does or shout on the sideline, the quietest of people who shout on the sideline and, uh, you know, uh, roar abuse at, at, at other people and, and children. And it's just, it's just um, sport can completely uh, lift people out of the kind of the, the, the reality, if you like, for, for that hour. And, and for the most part, that's a really, really positive thing. So um, Maslow hier- Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, it, it, it isn't actually about achieving um, your full potential. And I've heard a lot of people saying that they coach to contribute to the, the achieving of the, the child or the group's full potential. And that's fine, but it goes deeper than that. It goes to that place of magic that I'm talking about. You know, I love this poem. It's been thrown around before. William E. Henley, um, Invictus, the movie, Invictus, the book. I've read everything and anything that's ever been written about uh, Nelson Mandela. You know, and this is the poem that kept him going. At the end, it says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You know, and um, I often think of the guy uh, in that movie, Shawshank Redemption, when he's inside in the library and he has the music on and his earphones and he's just away. He's just in what some people call flow, but he's just not, he's not in prison. Um, he's, an, uh, he's just in a, in a different world. And I think um, for the hour a week or the two hours a week at a, at a blitz or at a training session, that's what we should be striving for as coaches. That uh, certainly is what I strive for and why I coach. Um, so nearly there now, um, you know, one guy, I suppose, if I had to kind of say who's in, inspired me or influenced me more, um, than anybody outside of my immediate, you know, social circle, um, who in the, in, the, in, the, in the literary world or academic world, it's this guy, Seamus Heaney. I've never seen anybody who can write such little amount of words, but the, the quality and the evoking of the feeling is just absolutely incredible. And, you know, Seamus Heaney uh, in his 50s, I think, uh, said that um, he has dedicated his life to bridging the gap between reality and um, the imagination. So he said, life is like walking along a ridge. And, and to be honest, I, I, this is probably how I perceive my own life. You walk along a ridge, and to your left is re- reality, and to your right is your imagination. And he said, if you are um, constantly looking on the left-hand side over towards reality, it, it can become just too much to bear. And he said that, that only for the imagination, he said, we, we wouldn't survive as uh, individually and as, 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 a, as a human race. He said, the, we are imagining creatures. And that's what he uh, dedicated his life to, 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 um, to, 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 to facilitating in the same way that we should facilitate it for children uh, that we coach. He said that, and it's, it's a profound um, quote, he said that people like to, be, like to rise out of the mundane and into the marvelous. And that's a kind of a, a principle by which I live and which I, I, um, I coach. So, you know, what, what, why do I coach? It's, 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 it's getting back to basics, whether it's, um, you know, under 10s in, in, in Mullingar Shamrocks or if it's the under 12s in, in, um, in, in, in Clannacilty or if it's in, in Donegal or anywhere, you know, Han and Limerick, children want to play and uh, they want to, uh, you know, they want to um, imagine, uh, they want to try, let them try, and they need to play as well, and probably something I didn't touch on, and uh, what's his name, uh, Simon Sinek does a lot of good stuff around leadership and safety, and, you know, re- really positive leaders make you feel safe, um, and so, you know, why, why do I coach? 
And obviously, I want to teach the children the skills of the game. I want them to be able to play the game. I want them to be able to strike off their left and right, develop the fundamental movement skills, physical literacy. All that house stuff is crucially important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying this is, this is the only reason, um, um, uh, uh, the only stuff that we should be doing. But at our deepest level, I think that, you know, why do I coach? I want to contribute to children imagining, participating, trying and playing Safely. If they win, brilliant, but they won't most of the time in, on the pitch or off the pitch in life. Um, so at my deepest level, I'm trying to facilitate just for an hour, two or three a week, um, children to respond to life. This is what those children are doing in Syria. You see it in, in, in the refugee camps in, in, um, in Turkey. And, and just look after, after you know, the whole place is bombed and, and torn down. You know, children, it's the first thing you'll hear when you come out of, of, of a place like that. There's no, there's no better place for me in the world than being on a schoolyard at break time, especially small break. And, and just the burst of energy and the sound of children. And probably the, the nicest piece of work I do in my work uh, with the GA is the Dublin Coming a Month School Finals because there's thousands of children come into Crow Park. They pack Crow Park uh, for the final. And it's just children's voices filling the air. Positivity, hope, you know, imagination, and just, just sheer and utter um, purity. So what am I doing as a coach at my deepest level and facilitating um, and contributing to the facilitation of children to respond to life, to rise up out of the mundane and into the marvelous and to experience um, transcendence and awe. It might seem off the wall, but I hope that I have um, given you some kind of a snapshot around why I coach. And I, as I said at the start, I really hope that I have... Um, maybe just provoked a feeling within you or some thought um, as to maybe why you get out of bed every Saturday or Sunday morning. Gordon Magwith. Excellent. Thanks very much for that, Pat. Um, if anyone has any questions, you can throw them into the chat function and we'll read them out. Um, but as I said to you beforehand, Pat, if, if I'm quite for a long time, it's a, it's a good sign that that everything, everything is, is explainable enough. Um, as, long, as long as I didn't put you to sleep there, Colm, you know. Not at all, not at all. No. <laughs> really interesting stuff. And I suppose like, you know, like I suppose in, in my line of work, we'd come across a lot of this stuff, but the stuff that you showed me, I, I would say I've only probably seen 10% of it, you know. Um, mm. So I just want to say thanks very much for, for, for willingness to share that stuff and to, I suppose to, to share your own thoughts and open yourself up a small bit as well there in regards to uh, what way you do it. Um, there's not no questions yet. As I said, if anyone has any any questions during the chat function, and if not, um, Pat's details are there. People can get in touch with you. You have the blog there on the website, and on Twitter as well. So there's no problem there. Um, I suppose you like as I said from from a from a coaching perspective. As I said, I thought the the interesting part was the um the, the success, you know, and how you I suppose broke it down that. Like as I said, it has been a thing in the GA for years and years and years. And even now, um, at this time of the COVID-19, you know, the, the teams want to get back and they want to win their championship. Um, and, you know, it's something that we're conscious of in Cork. And I think, I think all the underage groups in Cork are just going to play a league format to play as many games as possible to give the children a chance to play, as opposed to playing a straight knockout championship. Um, so I, I think, it's, I think it's, it's very interesting. And I think it's something that um, every coach that's on with us definitely got something out of. And everyone that listens afterwards will get something out of it as well. Um, have you anything else to add, Pat, before you before we finish up? Then said so there's no questions coming in. As I said, it's usually a good sign. 
Um, so yeah. you, you explained explained everything fa fairly well. Um, and I know like some of the stuff there goes in, it does go a lot deeper, the, like the Maslow stuff and the, the, we're talking about the yin and the yang as well. And, and, and like they, that's a whole different world once we start going into them, like, isn't it? It is like it's. It's. I. I delivered something similar to this before on on developing a coaching philosophy, and I kind of, kind of turned a lot of people off. And I, I know, that I know that this kind of presentation isn't everyone's cup of tea. I know that, but, uh, you know, at a basic level, column, I would just encourage anyone. I think if you if 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 you're taking the time out, which you're doing, to come on here this evening, and um, it, it says something about you, you know, as a coach. Um, and I just, you know, just maybe ask it, why, why am I doing this? You know, really and truly, why, why am I doing it? And I think if you can synergize it with, like I showed the little quotes there of the, the three young fellas, if you can kind of synergize it with, um, and, uh, you know, with, with, with what they want, ask, ask the group, you know, you know why, 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 why are you, it, it, it might sound a bit mad, but like maybe individually or to two or three kids together, why, why do you play? Yeah. Why, are you, why are you here, you know, and... I agree. I agree with you. Like, and it is something I'll actually will encourage coaches to do that um, when before we get up and running again, because I suppose a lot of the time, and you mentioned it, the stakeholders, the people that make the decisions, are probably not the people that are most affected by the decisions. Mm -hmm. And the greatest stakeholder in the GA, especially from let's say from our perspective of dealing with kids, is the kids. And very, very rarely do we actually ask them their opinion and their thoughts and stuff. And like, look, they're not going to give us a a PhD or a thesis on, on their thoughts, but they're going to give us the truth, um, which is very important. And I suppose for coaches as well, it can, it, it'll probably ground them a small bit that, you know, it's not about winning every game. It's about making sure that, that when Johnny comes down, if he wants to play with Timmy, and they might, maybe they do a small bit of messing and we, we split them up every night. Maybe that's not the best thing for them, you know, um, just because it was something that was done when we were kids and you kept the, the messes apart. But as I said, I think coaching has evolved now and that, kids are a lot more engaged throughout the training sessions because the coaches are, I think they're better equipped nowadays than they were when, when we were children. Yeah, like in the Office of the Children Ombudsman um, does a lot of great work around defining participation and what does that mean? You know, and I, I didn't go into it too much, but the participation, I suppose, often for a GA coach and my own up to recently was let the children play, you know, give them an opportunity to play. But it's, it's, a, it's way deeper than that. It's about... Yeah. Uh, involving them in the decision-making process of, you know, pretty much everything they're involved in. And that's why you see a lot more children on school councils and, and things like that. I think ultimately it's a positive thing. Yeah. And I think, uh, I, like you've mentioned, playing off a lot tonight, you know, it's, it's been a large part of the presentation. And I think there is a lot more research backing up um, out there now at the moment. I think, like, I know Owen Mooney is doing, I think he's, his doctorate is basically around the area of play. Mm. Um, so, so even getting those people that are able to share I suppose, like a lot of the things you'll do naturally yourself, but you won't have a name for what you're doing. And when you hear about it, you go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. that's, I'm kind of doing that. Um, mm -hmm. But when, as I said, when you're able to put, a, put terms behind it and put sort of facts and stats behind it, that this is what the importance of it and this is it, um, I think it'll become a lot more important in the, in the coming years. So, um, no, that's great. Um, do you just want to put up your contact details there again, Pat, before we go? And I'll leave it at that. Um, I think it's, it can just get you. Um, and as I said, I'll have this on podcast and I'll be on YouTube um, within, within sort of by noon tomorrow at the latest. Pat, uh, you've been very good for your time. It was really interesting. I said it was plenty of key points for everybody to take away. Um, thanks for joining us. And I hope you all had, um, 
y'all join us again next week. We'll have Dr. Ed calling on. Um, and I think that'll probably be our last coach education one for the, for the summer because I'd imagine we'll all be mad to get out in the pitches after that. So thanks very much, Pat. Thanks, Colin. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate it.